My name is Austin Walter. Uh, I'm a senior here at UGA, and I'm going to be doing the reading tonight. So we're going to be reading Acts 28, uh, verses 1 through, six, or 1 through 10, and then we're going to kind of jump to 16 and read on from there. So once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happening to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with their supplies we needed. And then 16. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to him, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we wanted to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger, in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They, dis they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made the final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through, Is through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and, turn, I, and in turn I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where we end the story of Acts. And it's weird because the way Luke has written Acts resists an ending. What Austin just read does not sound like how most authors or screenwriters end a movie or a book, right? And that's intentional because this is a story, it happens to be recording a story that has no ending. The story's still being written. I mean, tonight, this story, uh, the book of Acts, the spirit on the move in his world, renewing everything through Jesus, there's a page being written right now. 
here in Athens. That's why there's no ending, and that's why this doesn't feel like an ending. And they all lived happily ever after. It, it, it leaves a lot hanging. And what it leaves hanging is the mission of the church, God sending his people to reach people who had become his people. So there's really just two points we're gonna look at tonight, try to keep it simple as we land the plane on the past 14 weeks together. First, your God-given mission will succeed, but it may not feel like it. And the second thing we'll see in here is God is in the details, and so are his greatest opportunities. I have four kids now. The scary thing is, is that the oldest is five, which means a lot has happened in the past five years in my house. One thing I, I love about kids, uh, kids love repetition, which means they love rituals. Like if you do one fun thing with them, it's something that you're gonna have to start doing like all the time. You go out and kick the soccer ball with your kid, now he wants to do it every single day. Well, we have rituals in our house, rhythms that we just kind of did a one-off thing and then our kids loved it and so it kind of became this re repetitious thing. Every Sunday morning, Anna makes cinnamon rolls for the kids to try to celebrate the Sabbath. Sunday is here, this is a good day. It's a day of fun and feasting so you get to start your day with cinnamon rolls. There was one time in the past five years where we, didn't, we weren't stocked up on the little Pillsbury cinnamon roll she makes, and it was a terrible day, uh, and we paid heavily for it. Every Friday night, they get a movie night, and then every night that I'm home for bed, um, we have a bedtime ritual. So I'll like, those who are old enough and actually have a bed, I'll climb in bed with them and we'll say prayers and we'll sing this song called Have Mercy. And uh, again, if I forget that, there's been a few nights I've fallen asleep on the couch or I just thought they'd forget and they don't. We hear the little panther of chublet footsteps coming down the hallway and the line is, Dad, I forgot to say, have prayers, have mercy. Or uh, say prayers, have mercy. That's what they say. Dad, I forgot to say prayers, have mercy. And Addie, especially my three-year-old, uh, is just rigidly enforces this ritual. And Addie and I have a little addition to the bedtime ritual. And uh, it was especially cute when she was first learning how to talk. And so I would, you know, we'd be in bed praying and singing her song. And then I would always say it, I, just to push her buttons, just to kind of get a giggle out of her, I'd say, and I've shared this story with you all before, I've, I've, um, I would say to her, Addie, can Dada sleep in your bed tonight? And every single time she laughs, she loves it. She's never sick of it. She loves it. And she says, no, Dada. You can't sleep in my bed. You're too big. But I can sleep in your bed <laughs> every night. It's like the, she's had an epiphany, and she's got this brilliant idea of how she's going to solve the problem. She can sleep in my bed. Now, technically, she's correct. She has a tiny little, you know, little girl twin bed, and Anna and I live in the lap of luxury, and we have a queen-size bed. And so technically, Addie has done the math like, I can fit in their bed, there's a ton of room, but he can't fit in my bed, but it's actually a little bit more sophisticated just than that. She's realized that I am this grown-up man, and there really is not room in her bed for me, but they sleep in a really big bed, and there's plenty of room, and so I get to cross the hallway and go get up in their bed. Now, I've shared this with you before, and the reason I shared it before is that I love this story because I don't know why, but my mind, when she says this, immediately goes to me and Jesus. Because I think the default posture of my heart, my attitude towards him when I'm not working on it, just the resting heart rate of my thoughts about God, 
and I think they're yours too, are, are usually, the way I think about them is, um, I've got my little life, my little story, my little mission, my little agenda, and I love it. It's so comfortable. And I love it when God kind of comes into my little life and into my little story, my mission, my agenda, and he, and he, and he blesses it. And he, and he puts the train back on the tracks. He fixes the problems. He brings healing. And then he kind of invariably, you know, he leaves, and that's fine, because next time he can come get into my little, my small little story in my life and my tiny little mission, and he can bless it again. What the gospel holds out to you, whether you're familiar with Christianity or not, is not call out to the Lord and he will come into your life. There is not room for him in your life or your story or your mission or your goals or your dreams. We live in little itty-bitty toddler beds and he is the maker and sustainer of the universe. He has no beginning or end, left or right, top or bottom. He is infinite. He is holy. He is God. How does he fit in your story, your itty-bitty little life? The hope of the gospel and the offer of the gospel is like what I say to Addie. Addie, there's a solution to the problem, or like Addie's figured out. You can come into my bed. There's plenty of room there. The offer of the gospel is Jesus saying to you, not, I'll come into your heart, I'll come into your life and make it better. It's, would you like to come into my life and my story? It is limitless. It is boundless. It is eternal. It is indestructible. That's the hope of the gospel. I had a friend, uh, these guys I used to go hunting with. I love them, so I'm not saying this story to throw them under the bus. They're awesome. I had a great time. We did this for about 20 years or so before we all got busy with kids. We would trade off who said the blessing before dinner, and one of my buddies one year, it was his turn to say the blessing before dinner, and what he said was this. Dear God, come down through that crack, bless this food, and go right back. And it grated on me. And not in a, I, it's not like angry or judgmental. I was just, I was so caught off guard by that. I was like, it, I was like, what, what? I, I, as I think I should have been, it's kind of a blasphemous way to talk about God. But here's the deal. I, I can't judge my friend. And the reason why is because I think he actually finally put words to something that is very true about me and you. Isn't that your attitude towards God oftentimes? When you call out to him, when it's time to pray, when there's the moment of crisis, dear God, come down through that crack, bless my life and go right back. Come, I need you. Fix the problem. Grant the wish, grant the prayer, grant the dream. Straighten things out. Help me. But whether you stick around after or not is kind of beside the point. Come down through that crack, bless my life. And if you want to go back, that's fine. I'll call out again. It's the same thing with the bed. Are you, are you in a posture of imagining your life as your life, your story, your mission, your dreams, your goals, your ambitions, your plans? And God is this external person. You might love him. You might want him. But he kind of, he's allowed into your life and your story where he gets invited when you need him to do something. Or has Jesus met you in a way where he has reoriented everything? And he's shown you, I love you, but I am not interested in inhabiting such a claustrophobic stranglehold of a little place called your life and your story. But I would love it. I would love to welcome you into mine and what I'm doing in the world and what I'm doing in you. Have you reached that moment? The Apostle Paul is a, is a man that 
used to have this mentality and attitude of his life of like, when I need God, I call out and he comes down and he does stuff for me and then I go back along my way. And he met the living, resurrected Jesus one day, an unwieldy Jesus, an uncontrollable Jesus who didn't follow Paul's orders and wouldn't come down and just touch Paul's life and make it turn to gold, but who issued commands and who called Paul into a better story. Paul met him. And that's why the Apostle Paul elsewhere in his writings says stuff like, it is no longer Paul who lives. Paul died. It is now Jesus who lives in me. That's Paul's way of saying, I got up out of the tiny bed and I walked across the hallway. And I love this life. I finally found my life. That's Paul saying the old is gone and the new has come. That's Paul saying wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is space, there's wide open space. Paul is saying, I don't have this relationship or posture towards God anymore where I invite him into my life to bless my mission and then to go back to whatever he was doing before. It's that Jesus has invited me into his mission and actually, though it cost me my life, I finally found my life. Jesus told us this. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear fruit. I'm a gardener, or at least I'm trying to be. I had more success this year than in the past. Seeds, you can't just drop a, I can't just reach into the the pumpkins on my porch, cut them open, grab the seeds, throw them into the ground, and they grow. What has to happen? You gotta put those babies in the sun and kill them. They gotta dry out, they gotta die. The life that's in them now has to completely leave. Then they will bear fruit. Then new life will spurt out of them. Paul experienced what Jesus had already told him. Unless you die, unless that story dies, that mission, those goals, those dreams die, and you actually begin to realize, why was I clinging on with these to white knuckles anyway? They're tiny, they're itty bitty, there's not room but he's invited me into his. Well, that's what he's invited you into. It's what he's invited Paul into. And it's that way. When I said earlier, your God-given missions will succeed. What I'm talking about is as God has invited you into his work in the world, his life, the, the ways that he lets you participate with him and join the mission and join the work, that stuff, the labor he's given you to do to participate with him, that will succeed. It's indestructible. You will bear fruit. You will have an impact in the work that he's given you to do, to join him as he renews the world and as he announces good news to people who have never heard good news. That's what will bear fruit. When you join Jesus and what he's doing in the world, if you walk with the risen Lord Jesus in dependence, you will leave a mark. What's the impact that this has on you? Uh, Paul Tripp says that the measure of our potential is our savior. Surrendering to God allows very ordinary people to do extraordinary things, which means this. When you get out of your tiny little bed and stop asking God to come in and bless your tiny little world, but you join him in his world and his life and his mission and his goals, a funny thing happens. Your potentials start to explode the possibilities in your life and in your story start just exponentially increase. They become limitless. They become boundless. Why? Jesus is now working through you on his mission. He is letting you be a part of his work. You're a tool in his hand. A scalpel sitting on the ground has zero potential. 
A scalpel in the hand of a surgeon has limitless potential. A human being in the hand of God, surrendered and yielded, has limitless potential, limitless possibilities. A human being clinging to himself or herself, refusing to yield yourself because you think he's after you to take your life, to take your fun and your freedom, has zero potential, zero possibilities. It's why we feel so crushed with anxieties when you lose sight of God. You intuitively know you have no possibilities, no potential. You intuitively feel like I'm swimming in the deep end of the pool and I'm not gonna make it because you know you're operating beyond your resources. Well, what if you started judging your story, your life, based on God's resources and not yours? What kind of confidence would, be, would just invade your life? What kind of confidence would invade your attitude towards building relationships in this room? When you realize it's not just my personality and my courage, can I get up the, the courage to go to a small group? What if Jesus is willing to share his power with you, his courage, his energy, because your life has been plugged into his life and his story? Do you see how it expands your possibilities of what you are able to do? Do you see how it increases your legacy and your impact? It's not you working, it's him working through you. Paul saw this in this account, it's evident, and it changed his life. If you go, if, when you join Jesus on his mission, you have to reevaluate the possibilities of your life and your story, and you have to reevaluate your potential. Would you be more or less risk averse? Would you be willing to take a few more chances? Would you be willing to say yes to a few more seemingly impossible missions with the Lord, that person that you'd never in other, any other circumstance invite to anything or ask about their life or talk about Jesus and now you're like, well, if he is working through me and I have no limits, why not? This changes everything. George Whitfield is an old preacher and he, he's English, so he would travel across England preaching the gospel in incredibly gifted order. People by the tens of thousands were converted under his ministry. He came to Georgia, actually, when this was an unsettled colony of England, and he, uh, if you go to Savannah, there's statues to him everywhere. There's schools all across the state named after him to this day. There's counties named after him. Uh, be, because he believed that Jesus worked through him, nowhere was off limits. No person was off limits. He's the one who said, we are immortal until our work here on earth is done. Because Jesus holds your life in his hand and because he is working his mission and his agenda and his dreams through you, nothing will stop you, nothing will thwart you, nothing will harm you until that mission is complete. Nothing will get in your way in a sense that stops you or impedes you from fulfilling that mission. And this changes your motivations as well. Because of this, when people who've experienced God doing impossible things, people who've experienced, when you've experienced God repeatedly doing the impossible in you and through you, you start to be up for bigger and bigger journeys with him, bigger and bigger missions. Scarier and scarier things that don't scare you as much anymore. Because you're like, I've seen him show up so many times, so many times. 
and you start to say yes to more and more and more. It changes your potential, your possibilities, your motivations, your attitude towards him, your attitude towards other people. Now, you might be hearing a lot of this, and you're thinking, while this sounds amazing, sign me up. I want to be a part of this, an indestructible life, a, a, a guaranteed, impactful life. You're guaranteed to have a wake of blessing behind you in this life. Sign me up. But then if you were listening to what Austin read, you're, you're, realizing, you're, you're, you're hearing or remembering all these things like snake bites. Paul's gathering firewood and a, a poisonous snake bites him. And in the chapter before this, we didn't read it, but it's a whole chapter on the shipwrecks, multiple shipwrecks that Paul was involved in as he sailed from Israel up to Rome in this chaotic sea. And you say, is this really the blessed life, joining Jesus on mission, and I'm going to reach that destination of the mission, and however he's gonna use me, he's gonna do it, nothing's gonna stop him. That doesn't mean it's gonna feel indestructible. It doesn't mean it's gonna feel successful. And Paul really wrestled with this his whole time of knowing Jesus. A lot of stuff seemed to block him and hinder him and slow him down. I was thinking the story of Acts, like we missed out on this because we've spent four months reading this book. If you ever read it in one sitting, you would catch something that we've missed. And it's this. Acts is really the story of the church exploding out into the world and transforming the world. But, and, and it's amazing because the book starts in Jerusalem at the temple and the book ends on basically right before the throne of, of Caesar, of Nero. From the epicenter of Jewish life to the epicenter of Gentile life, of the world. And you're like, how did this happen? And you might, be, you might begin to think it's this seamless, explosive, unstoppable power. It's such a cool story. But if you go and read it in one sitting, you realize it's like a car getting onto an interstate going from zero to 80, except that there's speed bumps and speed humps and potholes and speed traps and flat tires in the space from zero to 80. Yes, the car is moving forward, you know. Yes, you're accelerating. Yes, it's unstoppable. Yes, none of these things that appear to be obstacles actually were. However, it feels like the tires are getting ripped off and the axle's about to fall off. It feels violent. It doesn't feel like you're going to get to where you're going. That's the church and the world. That's the work of the Spirit in the world. That's the work of God in your life. Doesn't it feel like the wheels are coming off sometimes? Doesn't it feel like you're not gonna get to where he said you're gonna go or you're gonna get to? Feel like you're running on a flat tire for the past 30 miles? That's normal. Jesus will get you to where he's taking you. Your missions will succeed, but it may not feel that way. Paul is not in Rome uh, for vacation or like a Maymester or something. Paul is in Rome because Jesus explicitly said in Acts 23, Paul, just as you have borne witness to me, just as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, now you must go to Rome and testify of me. So that's got to sound amazing to an intellectual theologian, sharp guy like the Apostle Paul. He's like the, the epicenter of power and learning and art and culture and communications and everything. Yes, please, sign me up. When's the plane leave? And the way Paul gets to Rome is described uh, in 2 Corinthians 11. Here's how Paul gets to Rome. Here's what happens between Jesus saying, you're going to Rome, and Paul arriving in Rome 
here in verse 16. Uh, this, is, this is out of context, but you'll pick up what I'm talking about. Paul says, over this time, I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. We read about that in Lystra. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea floating. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and I've gone out without sleep. I've been hungry and I've been thirsty and I've gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. And besides all of these other things, I face the daily pressure, the daily anxiety of my concern for all the churches that I've planted. Who is weak and do I not feel weak? Is everything I just said not true now? Because I told you that what we see in this passage is whatever Jesus has set apart for your mission, your piece of the action is he renews the whole world and reconciles sinners to himself is indestructible. Like Whitfield said, you are indestructible until your mission is complete. How is that true? Stonings, floggings, imprisonment, rejection, anxiety, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst. Has he not covered the whole gamut? What's left? What I actually said is your mission will be successful and it will bear fruit and you will have impact, but it will not feel like it. And you will have to walk this road, this fruitful path of walking with Jesus King Jesus in this world, and you'll have to walk that road by faith. But friends, what we see as obstacles is never an obstacle to Jesus, it's an opportunity. Yes, we see it as roadblocks, we see it as a brick wall, I'm not getting past this, there's no way forward through this. What he sees is opportunity and opportunity and opportunity to change you and to change others through you. Your sufferings give occasion for your testimony. Your trials and your obstacles are simply the occasion for your story about how Jesus is slowly, patiently, unstoppably moving forward his work in you and through you. This Saturday, right here, uh, a lot of us, a lot of you, and a ton of people from this city and beyond uh, gathered to grieve uh, Brent Weatherly, who is a friend of many of us. He's a dad to Joy and his other children, um, a father and elder, just an incredible person. And Noah prayed for him last week up here. Brent died of colon cancer last Tuesday night. He was adored. Jared, his, one of his best friends is his pastor, Jared of Resurrection Presbyterian, was given the message at the end and just wept at that pulpit for minutes before he was able to get words out. And he was sharing the stories of just how over the past few years there was all these moments of hope and promise. There's this new immunotherapy. We think you're a candidate for it. There's this new chemo cocktail. We think you're a candidate for it travel to Nashville, travel to Houston, travel to wherever, and it kept coming back right at the last minute. 
your iron count is too low or your whatever in your blood is too low. You, you just missed it. You don't qualify. And it was just this disappointment after disappointment when his life is on the line of all these doors shutting. And Jared said this in response to that six years of doors shutting and wrestling with Jesus of what are you doing. He said, the world is not impressed by Christians who get everything they want and have an easy life. It's impressed by Christians who lose everything they have in this life. But say, still, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's the end of Psalm 73. Even if I lose it all, my life is in you. You are my life. You are all I have. You are all I want. That'll get the world's attention. How is this person who's literally lost it all seem to be under the impression he has everything? Are obstacles in your life that you face truly obstacles? In one sense, yes, they're disappointments, they're roadblocks, they slow you down, they frustrate us, they make us ask, God, what are you doing and where are you? Are they obstacles to God's work in your life? They are only ever opportunities. And it's not like he's waiting for you to just take advantage of the opportunity. They're opportunities that he is taking. Was Brent's life fruitful, successful? Was his mission accomplished? There was not an empty chair in this room. I'd say so. You want your life to be successful? For mission to be accomplished? For fruit to be born? For lives to be blessed? For you to get to join the living God and the only work in this place that actually matters and lasts and endures. Join Jesus in his mission. He's invited you into it. He's invited you out of the tiny little missions. I could, re- I could just, I mean, to prove this, I just would have to read the passage again. All of the obstacles that only served as opportunities to share and to spread and to magnify Jesus and his power in this gospel. The snake bite. Why did it even happen? It's such a silly, stupid little thing. You, Paul must have been like, that was so dumb. I just grabbed this bunch, of, this bunch of sticks and we go throw it on the fire and a snake just latches onto his hand and sits there and everyone's like, what? And they're just watching him. And you think about all the details that led to that, the silly little things that led to what should have been the end of Paul's life. He randomly washes up onto an island called Malta that he finds out about afterwards in the Mediterranean. And these people are really hospitable when he gets there. And it's raining and it's cold. Seemingly inconsequential details. So they make a fire and Paul's like, well, I should help him build a fire. And he goes and grabs firewood and he dumps it. A snake bites him. And you're like, what a stupid, silly mistake. I'm gonna die and I'm not gonna get to Rome because a snake bit me. A snake was gonna take down this pillar of the church. Not an obstacle, not the cold, not the rain, not the snake, not the venom. Paul's life is hidden in Jesus, and Jesus was not blocked by that particular event. It was an opportunity to show to the people around him, you should pay attention to what this man says. You should listen to him. Something bigger is going on through this Paul. And then later on, it just continues. Uh, The land that he happened to wash up on, 
just so happened to be the next door neighbor of the governor of the island. And so this guy invites Paul and his companions in and he says, you can crash on the couch and they stay there three days. And it just so happens that at that very time, this guy's dad is dying in the back bedroom. Paul just goes back there to check on him. And Paul prays for him and Paul, some silly little, he probably just puts his hand on his head and he says, in the name of Jesus, be healed, be well. And he's well and because it just so happened to be the governor's dad, everybody on the island hears about it. And guess what? All the sick, all the lame, show up at this guy's front door and Paul heals them all in the name of Jesus. All of the things that led to these opportunities were obstacles, were speed bumps, were deviations from the clear, linear, easy path. And they all led to a bigger and bigger megaphone calling out how good and how powerful and how concerned with your pain and concerned with your suffering Jesus is. It was all seen as obstacles. And yet, Jesus turned it into opportunities. And when Paul finally gets to Rome, it seems even worse. Rome, it's the destination. It's where he was supposed to be. It's the, his moment, his moment. The moment of his entire life was building to. And guess what happens? He gets in there and he's put under house arrest in a random little house in a random little neighborhood in a random little sub, suburb, uh, suburb of Rome. And eventually he probably sees Caesar, but not for years. It's like getting stuck in a traffic jam on the way to your wedding. It's not where you wanna be when 12 o'clock rolls around. Paul is not in Rome. He's not where Jesus said he was gonna be. It seems completely thwarted. You, you dislocate your hip right before the end of the season. You're like, what's going on here? Guess what Jesus turns it into? the first house church in Rome in a sense. There was Christians in Rome before Paul wrote to him years earlier through Romans, but, but Paul basically gets to sit in the house and hold court 24-7, 365 for two or three years as people from around the city just come and they listen as he preaches about Jesus, about his love for sinners, about his healing power, about his invitation for you to come and join him in his life. And on and on and on, your lives are just the same, and I want to end in a practical place. What are the obstacles for you? What are the roadblocks, speed bumps, flat tires, speed traps you keep getting stuck in and you think this is evidence that I have an ineffective life, a fruitless life, mission unaccomplished and will never be accomplished? When is, God, when is Jesus ever going to use me when he's ever going to show up? Well, if you have joined him on his mission... And these setbacks happen. What are you to do? If you want to see him at work in these places, you and I are going to have to start helping each other have an eye for detail. We really are. I'm not just saying that for rhetorical effect. You are going to have to take responsibility for the people in this room and, the, and your friends. You are going to have to start calling out what you see, where you see God at work in the midst of seeming obstacles. What obstacles might you be facing? Lord, I want to be married yesterday. Where's my boyfriend? Where's my girlfriend? Because everybody else seems to have one. How does the Lord use your singleness right now that is agonizing as an opportunity? Well, I can tell you this. I wanted to be married for a while. It never occurred to me that I needed to be prepared for marriage. I just wanted it. God spared Anna a lot more suffering than she already has to go through being married to me 
by working through years and years. I was 28 when we started dating. Has it ever occurred to you that maybe you need to be shaped and formed and prepared for a marriage that won't blow up when you're in? Maybe that's why Jesus is lingering. Maybe it's not an obstacle. Maybe it's an opportunity he is taking advantage of. Lord, I want this internship now. I need it. I've got to have it to get to anywhere else I want to be in my life or I've got to get into that med school now. And you don't get into the med school and you don't get the internship and you see obstacle to what I thought was God's plan for my life. And he says opportunity. You would have been so puffed up. You would have continued on your your baby step departure from my presence and into independence, into autonomy if you had gotten into that school. It would, have, it would have finished the last little loop of your departure away from me. And so I kept you on a short leash where you felt underemployed in Athens for three years after you graduated working like a waiter's job. But you got me, you kept me, even if you didn't get the job. Mission accomplished. You say, Lord, I'm a junior and I've been in RUF for two years and Ben always says, stick around long enough and you'll find your friend group and I haven't found my friend group and I've done all the stuff he says to do. Where's my friend group? You see obstacle and Jesus sees him forming you into a remarkably loving person who sees the lonely person in every room you walk into because you are the lonely person. and He has so softened your heart and quickened your feet, that you are now a blessing in the lives of dozens of people because you don't have a friend group. You are the friend group to tons of people. You see obstacle. He makes it an opportunity. Tim Keller says this, and we'll end. He says it about prayer, but I think it applies to our lives too. We can be sure that our prayers are answered precisely in the way that we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knew, and I think we can tweak that to say, you can be sure your life is unfolding exactly the way you would want it to if you knew everything that Jesus knows, if you were as magnificently loving and thoughtful as he is. We have to take into account we don't know what he knows. What do we know? Who are we to give him commands about how to engineer our lives? What do we know? We don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow. When you hear his invitation to leave your tiny little life and to come into his, do you see that as a, is it the best day of your life or the worst day of your life? Friends, it, I, I, I plead with you, it's the best day of your life. It's the best word you've ever heard. It's the best invitation you've ever been extended. Put down your little life and say, Jesus, every day I go back to my little toddler bed, let me in. I wanna come. Bring me along. Friends, Jesus is not just moving heaven and earth to use you in his kingdom mission. He is moving heaven and earth to reach you for the first time or the thousandth time. He is using all the people around you on his kingdom mission in their life to reach you, maybe even tonight again to say, come, leave that, come, join me. Let's pray. Jesus, it's been a long 13 or 14 weeks. Piece by piece, we've been hearing this story of your work in the world and your work in our lives. And we really do want it, I know, We really do want it. But we have this weird fascination with our tiny beds and our tiny stories. We find life in them and we pray that you'd help us again to hear you, to see you, 
And like Addie hears me say, why don't you come over here? We would wanna love you enough to actually move towards you and see you moving towards us. Bless us in the weeks we're apart and bring us back together. We pray in your name, amen.